I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farhan, and I'm the advocate. And this is again uh, Pushback Talks. And, That's true. And uh, we're co-hosts of a podcast. We are. Which now, with, which now hit uh, 148 countries. Amazing. One of the latest in is Palestine. Yay. Uh, and others, which hey, is cool. I have news for you. Yeah? Well, you had news for me, but we have news for the world. Push is going to play in Palestine. In Ramallah. In Ramallah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Super cool. That's cool. Not till next year. The film is playing in many countries almost every week. And it's and if you want to show the film in where you are, just contact us. And sometimes even Leilani can come and speak online to you if she can find time. Anyway, <laughs> in Push the Film and, and in the, the podcast, we are... Scouting around, trying to understand what's cooking in the world, in, in especially in the in the space of housing, but also in the, the whole this development of inequality that is kind of so strong in the world. But remember, we'd said when we were out with Push that there was so much money floating into housing. So in the end, the only place you can live is is a place where there is no jobs, no public transport, and uh, no service. And then you think, oh, a trailer park in the U.S. <laughs> or <laughs> mobile home. You know, that's the, the world out where, where, okay, you could go out there and sit far away from everything, then maybe you can make it. But now what happens? Mobile parks are the only segment of real estate that grows stronger as the economy weakens. Quote the New Yorker. Leilani, what do you say? Yeah, well... Mobile homes, as a, like that's where you can make money. Put your it's money there. Crazy, it's crazy and very, very predatory. The Financial Times writes, manufactured housing is a hot commodity. A hot commodity, isn't that cool? Put your <laughs> it's money hot, somewhere. Hot, hot. It's hot, hot, hot. Anyway, this is what we're going to talk about: mobile homes, um, and it's also called. What do you call them? I mean, more formally? Manu- manufactured homes? Manufactured homes. Yeah. We ha- of course, we have a guest and somebody who knows a lot more than us. And this is Paul Bradley, who is in Concord, New Hampshire, with us today. So, Paul Bradley, you are the, the president of residence-owned communities in the U.S. Welcome to Pushback Talks. Good morning and thank you. It's great to be here. So I see that you've been you've been an advocate for for people in in mobile homes for for a very long time, and you're helping people to kind of get their homes out of the hands of these investors. But tell us a little bit, what is this? I mean, I hear 22 million Americans are living in these called mobile homes or manufactured homes. Tell us more about this this world of yours. Absolutely. Well, factory built housing really took off in the United States uh, in the 1920s. And significantly after World War II, a very substantial uh, number of travel trailers were built in factories and housed people, not just for weekends and week-long vacations, but permanently. And what happened is in the mid-70s, Congress woke up to the fact that, oh my goodness, we've got uh, travel trailers that you know have grown longer, grown wider, and are no longer being moved place to place, and people are treating them as permanent homes. 
So we better do something. So in the United States, 1976, was created a HUD code for factory-built manufactured housing, separate and apart from the recreational vehicle industry. And that, that segmentation you know, exists today. There are some plants, by the way, and some manufacturers that produce RVs, recreational vehicles, and manufactured housing in the same plants. Uh, that's how intertwined this is. But that was a very significant uh, piece of legislation. And since 1976, the HUD code, Manufactured Housing Code, has continued to improve. So that today, these homes are uh, every bit as good a quality as site-built housing. And you know this coming from Sweden. Tremendous opportunities in factory-built housing. And that hangs out there as a an enormous opportunity, both for affordable housing providers, but also those of us interested in, uh, you know, environmental uh, improvement uh, in housing as well. Paul, what I hear from you is that we should a little bit step out of the mindset of the, the trailer parks, the mobile homes we've seen in a lot of American films. That's how I know them. You know, Eminem, the film about Eminem, he was living in a, in a trailer park. You know, that's, that's one image of, of those uh, homes. But there are also a lot of other homes that are stable and flowering communities and so on. Is that what you're saying? We, this is like a... 22 million people means that there are a lot of different shapes of, of this uh, these way of living. There is, and what's interesting is most people are fixated on 1960s and 1970s trailer parks or mobile home parks. So their image, and what's, what's uh, really presented in a lot of films, uh, Frederick, are, are older trailer parks. Um, but... Uh, those in the, in the industry and many homeowners today experience a very different experience with this housing stock. Um, and, uh, but the challenge is that the, this industry is both of those things, travel yeah. trailers of the 1960s and 50s and modern manufactured housing. Uh, it is all, uh, all the same. Now, in terms of 22 million uh, individuals who live in manufactured housing and mobile homes in the U.S. Uh, keep in mind, about half of those, maybe a little bit more than half, uh, own their home and also own the land underneath it on what traditional subdivided lots. Hmm. The other half, yeah, a little, maybe closer to a third, uh, own their home, but they rent the land from a private investor. And that's really been the focus of our work is helping those homeowners that own their home but rent the land to form a limited equity co-op to buy the land. Leilani, mm. I know you, we keep sending stories to each other and you send me a story about our best friends in the housing world, uh, the Blackstone Private Equity Fund, the yes. biggest private equity fund in the world. Um, Blackstone buying into mobile homes. So why why is this alarming for you as a as a housing advocate? Mm. Well, of course, I'm concerned about the 50 or so percent that Paul mentioned of people who don't actually own the land on, on which their home is situated, uh, and many of whom are extremely low income. I think. Um, mobile home or manufactured home residents typically make less than about 50,000 US 
a year. And if you do the maths on that, a third of that on an annual would be like 1300 available for rent. It's not a lot of money for rent if you're a family needing two, three bedrooms. Um, and so what we're talking about is a population, well, that I'm concerned about, that's, you know, low income could be veterans, persons with disabilities, single mothers, immigrants, migrants. And then you've got this behemoth, private equity, mega capital zooming in to do what they do best, which is make money, reap profits, and uh, really in a predatory way, uh, squeezing off of the land every cent they can. Um, Paul can probably talk about this much better than I can, but, you know, increasing rents, but also increasing fees associated with having your manufactured home on the property. And it's, it is Blackstone, but there, I think there's other big ones involved. Carlisle is a big private equity group. Also, that Canadian company is big there, isn't it? Brookfield, correct, based in Toronto. You Canadians, you're, you sell yourself as so friendly, but then you're so hostile. It, I mean... So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It's kind of. You know, we just say, we just say, yeah, we'll take your money. Thank you. Please. (laughs) (laughs) The American is a little bit more straightforward. Again, (laughs) mobile home parks are the only segment of real estate that grows stronger as the economy weakens. What do we take of that quote, Paul and Leilani? Well, Frederick, you have to put yourself in the position of somebody who owns their home but rents the land. And while they might be called mobile homes and have a history in the travel trailer industry, manufactured housing today is not easily relocated. And so uh, there is a significant opportunity to raise the land cost, the lot rent, and uh, generate more cash flow and profits from ownership of the land. And I've been at this for a long time. I've been working with homeowners in mobile home communities for now 34 years. And, you know, historically, <clears throat> local owners, people knew commun- those in their communities, um, and uh, this formula worked fine for a long while. Now, you always had a few bad actors that would take advantage, but it worked fine. What I've seen in the last 15 years, and really after 2008, a lot of financial sophistication came into the market and these uh, men and women were very good at assembling capital and running pro formas and they found the little sleepy mobile home park business and they found this dynamic of renting land to people who couldn't relocate their homes. And when you're sitting at a pro forma and want to go from a 16 IRR to a 20% internal rate of return or return on equity, um, very easy to do with Excel spreadsheets. Um, and that's really what we've seen. Um, and so there has been an explosion. We've always known private equity, real estate investment trusts in the manufactured housing community business. That's who's developed these properties, are private investors. But the financial sophistication and the desire or willingness to turn screws has really dramatically ratcheted up. Um, and you know, you know this from other podcasts, I'm sure, uh, private equity, you know, has poured into the mobile home park business, but as it has single family, uh, residential, um, here and, and all over the world. Yeah. I mean, my film push, we meet people in cities 
in the poorest areas of the cities uh, and they suddenly their homes are the best place to to invest money and we had blackstone pouring into sweden into denmark into poland into uh, czech republic into everywhere and always with an interest to going for the low income homes not to the the bank palaces the the centerpiece buildings of the cities no to the suburbs and this was like oh wow this is happening leilani this is like what we we, you, we saw this but could you at that point imagine that they will also be out there at the, the mobile homes absolutely i mean of course you know you we know we were charting their patterns and their patterns are to go where they can make money and this is a, a ripe area for them to make uber profits one of the things that's so important about manufactured homes in the states is you know every our listeners re are reminded that the u.s is a country that doesn't um, as uh, a form of state assistance provide much in terms of housing so mobile homes or manufactured homes become a go-to uh, because there is no social housing, for example, available to most people. Um, it, so, so that's very important. But I also want to note the incredible predatory nature of what Blackstone, Carlisle, Brookfield, and others are doing. I mean, if I read the article in the New Yorker that Frederick you referenced, and I mean, it's it's actually incredible. The the thought process, the the financial planning around this, right? So go to communities and, in, you know, buy up uh, manufactured homes in, in communities where the tech industry has made life more expensive. That's a good place to invest. That's number one. Then they say things like, um, look for a park that's got high occupancy and that doesn't need a lot of investment. Take out any possible amenity like a playground or a swimming pool because that will require insurance. Make sure you've got a nice sign and make sure any maintenance costs get put on to the actual tenants. And regularly raise rents, but not so much that it would drive out desirable tenants. I mean, this is from the New Yorker article, right? So just completely predatory. Paul, you're smiling here. I mean, <laughs> but it's, it's, it looks like this is your reality. I mean, it's uh, it's extremely cynical. It's it's uh, it's upsetting, I would say. Um, but how do you see this? Do you you meet this? I guess. Well, it is a victory every day uh, when we can help a group of homeowners form a co-op and remove these properties from the speculative real estate market. That's really Frederick and Leilani where I go with this is. Well, what are we doing in the marketplace to counter this? How do we roll this back? How do we deconsolidate what's been consolidated? Because consolidation is happening in all industries. And uh, here in, in the housing sector, this little segment is very exposed to it. And it's not just here in the US, Canada, uh, the UK, Australia, uh, all have this form of housing and the split ownership that's problematic, but yet tremendous promise because of the, the factory built housing. Um, so I'm highly motivated to, you know, scale up and help as many uh, homeowners form co-ops and buy their communities as co-ops. Uh, we're a network now of 302 communities 
uh, just over 21,000 homeowners. And uh, we're hoping to double that in the next eight years. Wow. Yeah, so let me understand, Paul. In the U.S., what legislative protection do manufactured homeowners have? Like, are they, cons- do they, f- do they come under landlord tenant legislation? Um, and does that change if they manage to form these cooperatives that you were talking about? Do they have better protection? So these are, as a general rule, landlord tenant statutes in states. And of course, tremendous power rests with the landlord. I do not use the landlord tenant frame personally. Uh, I think it disrespects hardworking people that have bought their homes. Uh, these are homeowners and it's a community owner. Um, and we need to balance the interest between those two as best we possibly can. Um, but, but sorry, let me just ask, could a, could a manufactured home owner avail themselves of landlord tenant law to protect their interests? Or is there any other law they can rely on? Like, how do they protect against these big, huge actors? Yeah. So, you know, one, let's just pick an example. This is, this is based in state law now uh, in, in the U.S. This is real estate and state law. Uh, so it varies greatly depending on where you are in the country. Uh, of course, many listeners uh, will be familiar with California and probably respect that California is a heavily regulated market. Homeowners in California have far fewer exposures to things like change of use, uh, community closures, and displacement. If you're in Indiana, however, uh, legislation last year increased the notice period of a community closure from 30 days to 60 days. So as you noted, these are some of the lowest income homeowners we have in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, a 60-day notice to move not just your family, but to your home as well if you want to save it from the, the you know scrapper so we you know that would that would un uh, that, that would create tremendous instability for any family and any those income. notifications arrive to people you have to move out in 60 days yeah that's the state protection for community closure uh it was just a case wow. here recently uh so it really depends on states. But tell, uh, me, but tell me about this. I mean, you, you meet these kind of procedures where yeah. people get the notice. Uh, have you, and you met it recently, you said? Um, we read about that account. I, we uh, aren't active uh, as yet in Indiana, so we did not step in. But that's the difficulty with, with trying to solve this problem at the point of closure is the community has been disinvested in. And now it has a valuation based on an alternative higher use, higher value use, right? So very difficult. Somebody sells the land, basically. They're selling the land to a hotel or a grocery store, and, uh, and uh, you're, you're competing with that to save a community that has been disinvested in. So water and sewer and roads and trees and homes and et cetera. And that could have been people's homes for 50 years or 20 oh, years or... Oh, I've met res- I've met homeowners who've raised their children and now have their grandchildren visiting uh, in their in their communities uh, for sure. And then they could get a notice out, and it it would cost. I, I read somewhere ten thousand dollars to to move a home. Yeah, that's generally cited for uh, for a multi-section home, um, mm-hmm. but that varies greatly by market. And also, a uh, wonderful book, Manufactured Insecurity by Esther Sullivan from uh, University of Colorado. Uh, it really depends on what improvements have been made in the home. And you may know this from your factory-built experience in Northern Europe, but uh, you 
you even modestly change the the home, say add tile tile in the bathroom, that home may not be movable because it was so tightly engineered to arrive on that site and be set. Uh, modifications don't travel well and can destroy, end up you know, bending the frame and ruining the home. So very difficult to relocate homes. So people are, are they have their, their homes, but they can also get kicked out. It's a very insecure situation. It's like, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Frederick, those are the worst calls we get. Are the, are, we've been noticed our community is going to be closed and, and what can you do to help? Um, and we've pulled a couple of rabbits out of the hat over our 38 years, but um, they are heartbreaking phone calls and we generally don't have a solution. We've got to be upstream from that, which is why removing these from the speculative real estate market while they're still good operating communities is so important. Um, and there's some policies to your point, uh, Leilani, that uh, you know, states can implement. Uh, we do have six states in the US that have opportunity to purchase legislation. You might know it as tenant opportunity to purchase uh, from some other markets in multifamily housing, you've seen this. But these are you know, notices that give the homeowners a chance to form a co-op and match a bid from an outside buyer. Um, and that's a very important tool if we want to remove these. So uh, this happens for, with some places, Paul, that where like Blackstones and others are coming, they want to pick up this land. But you said, hey, in these six states, we have this legislation that actually you can now outbid them or you can go before. So this is what you are doing. That's when you're entering then. Yeah, so uh, case in point, uh, two summers ago, a 95 community portfolio was being sold. Two hedge funds had, a, had taken, it, taken this portfolio uh, as a result of a lawsuit. So they managed them for a couple of years and they sold the whole portfolio. Uh, to a small private equity firm. Uh, State of Colorado passed opportunity to purchase legislation uh, just two years ago. And two of the communities out of that 95, because they got noticed because they were in Colorado, ended up purchasing their communities. Uh, so we helped two out of the 95 become resident owned in Durango and in Boulder. Two great, great communities and, and uh, great groups. Uh, but it's only because the state had opportunity to purchase legislation, law, that those homeowners had any chance. Um, but, you know, things are, you know, that, that's attracting a lot of attention. Uh, we had a U.S. senator visit uh, that Animus View co-op down in Durango, Colorado here three, four weeks ago. Um, and this is definitely, you know, rising up on the uh, political spectrum because of the affordable housing crisis here and, and uh, in many places. Affordable Housing crisis, Leilani. <laughs> Have you heard about that one? <laughs> I've heard about that one. Yeah. There and everywhere. I mean, the right to purchase legislation I, I value as well, and I, I've seen it, as you said, Paul, in other contexts. The only drag is that it generally is, you know, based on market rates and you're pitting um, a private equity firm like Carlisle or Brookfield or, or Blackstone that can pay actually slightly above and are willing sometimes to pay, even though they're predatory, willing to pay, pay slightly above market and can outbid anyone anytime, knowing that they know how to make profits off of land pretty quickly. Um, and so it's not a really even playing field. Um, so, you know, there, there might be ni better legislation, <laughs> like yeah. no I private mean, I mean, equity I think that's purchase. what we've <laughs> seen with Blackstone and the others, is when they 
they sometimes enter with a higher bid. They pay more because they know if if we pay more, the whole market will go up. So they're yeah. in some way they're they're driving the market up. So they they kind of often overbid, which is very interesting. And it seems some people say, oh, why are they buying it so expensive? Mm-hmm. But then as they know, they also own a lot of other properties. They will also push up the value of the other properties. So it, in some way they are they are they are driving the the prices themselves in a in a very scary way. Paul, Lilani asked you a question and I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, are other kinds of legislation being contemplated um, besides the right to buy um, for the residents? Um, which I, I, I don't mean to undermine that. I think that's super important. And look, it worked in two of 95 cases. I don't know if the other 93 didn't have the means, didn't have the wherewithal, you know, were these the were the two that that came good? Were they generally with higher income people? You know, hmm. no, good question. And let's break that up a little bit. So, uh, I think of that portfolio, I think there were ten or so properties in Colorado which has this legislation. The rest were outside of Colorado where there is no law that requires notice. Oh, those just sold. Oh, those just sold in the marketplace. Uh, we had a capacity challenge in supporting all ten. Uh, and the two groups that really got organized under a very tight time frame uh, were the Boulder and, and uh, Durango groups. Uh, we'll be in a better position to respond, uh, you know, in Colorado today than we were uh, <laughs> uh, when we were then. But hey, you know, this is capa- you know this on the nonprofit community development side. This is capacity building. This is having the financial resources ready and available when you need them, uh, the, the staff capacity ready and available when you need them and when 10 properties hit you at once. In a big state like Colorado, that's that's gonna throw a wrench at anybody. But it's also very good to have those stories because this is inspiration to send out to other communities. Hey, the big guys might come and pick up your property, get organized and and, we, 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 I mean, talk to Paul and he can help you to, to make a cooperative, cooperative out of your, of your, mm-hmm. your homes. Yeah. And, you know, and I've been, we, we do have a, uh, increasing level of engagement in policy, uh, because there's clearly access to resources is critically important to support the communities that, that do want to purchase and do it in an affordable way because prices have gotten so high and, and it's putting a lot of pressure on the affordability of these communities. Uh, but we also are looking at this uh, from a market-based perspective. So we're currently in the final stages of uh, developing a term sheet and creating our own social impact equity fund to acquire portfolios. Because wow. so much has been acquired, uh, so much has been consolidated in the last 15 years that uh, we need to really enter the portfolio acquisition business where we can uh, complete any new home installations necessary, but ultimately deconsolidate those portfolios and offer those properties out one by one to the residents. Mm. Um, So it's our deconsolidation strategy. Um, Super excited about it. It's going to be an opportunity for limited partner social impact investors to, uh, you know, support our work and and, uh, helping transition more of these communities out of the speculative real estate market. Mm. Leilani, this makes me, you know, thinking about uh, Aaron, Aaron Glantz's book, 
and the house home wreckers because and we had Aaron here in the podcast because when after the 2008 crisis when Blackstone entered into the housing market they did it because the, the government was selling out homes but in package of like one billion per package kind of so people were not allowed to buy their own home so I mean and and Blackstone said hey we saved the market we helped everything but what if Blackstone have done what what Paul's people are doing, actually selling the homes back to the people instead of, <laughs> I mean, in that case, 13 million Americans lost their homes and then they had to start to rent their own home. You know, they paid yeah. for it once and then they started renting it to, to a much higher cost. Yeah. I mean, that shows you that you can, there can be different takes on how to move and to be in a society. And Blackstones are certainly not uh, friends of homeowners or of, of, of the society, of democracy, of anything. They're just in there to, to grab as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Or do you have a different view on that, Leilani? <laughs> no, I have the same view. And I, I was thinking that, you know, Paul mentioned that manufactured homes is, in fact, a very viable way to address the housing crisis, at least part of the housing crisis in many countries. They're, they can be affordable and they can be environmentally um, sustainable, um, made of environmentally sustainable materials, for example, and easy to transport, et cetera. And, so, and don't leave the same footprint that building does. And and yet, and so on the one hand, you have this like totally viable, you know, way of addressing the housing crisis, and then you have looming these predatory actors who will ruin it and who are ruining it, <laughs> and that keeps happening every time governments talk with me about their ideas for how they're going to solve the housing crisis. I keep saying to them, "And how will you keep the private equity at bay? Because we can dream all I." many ideas, many incredible ideas, but unless we manage to keep these actors out, they will just invade the space because they too see how this can be generate, how it can generate money for them. Um, so, I mean, I think I, I like the idea of playing with this, figuring out, okay, we've got this great model and how do we make sure it can move forward as a model, as a potential partial solution but keep those actors at bay. That's why I wrote the shift directives, which Paul probably doesn't know about. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'll send you a copy, Paul. Um, was you know, to figure out how to solve the housing crisis. Part of it is to keep those big actors at bay to re to to legislate. Yeah, and our contribution here, Leilani, is uh, to really operate in the shared equity housing space. And so I mentioned earlier, limited equity cooperative model is what we're scaling. And really it's a, it's a middle way solution. So the co-op is set up, and this is baked into the incorporation of the co-op. Uh, there's no profit motive in selling the land. That land is forever locked into affordable housing. If they were to sell it, the members would get back their very modest membership interest. 
and uh, the pro proceeds would be donated to a nonprofit doing affordable housing in that market. Uh, but there's a reason why not one of our co-ops in 38 years has ever resold their community to a for-profit buyer uh, is because there's no profit motive in selling the land. However, we are interested in low-income people building wealth, and so they, they do sell their home in the marketplace to another, to another household or family. Um, and we want them to build equity in that home. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing. So it's a, it's a middle way strategy where the land is preserved long term. And it is, Frederick, just as you said, these are modest size homes that are effectively four walls and a roof and a very small yard, which people can, you know, uh, park at their doorstep, literally, and walk right into their house with their groceries. And they have a, a you know, and I say small, there are lots in communities that are as small as 2,500 square feet, some as large as 10,000 square feet. But you're talking about a fairly uh, dense neighborhood of detached single-family homes that are themselves modest size. Many, um, you know, in the seven to 800 square feet, uh, and then some of the larger multi-section homes can grow upwards of of uh, 1,800 and 2,000 feet. Uh, but that is, uh, it's an important land use approval and an important uh, modest size housing stock, at least in US standards. Can you help uh, us to uh, translate this into square meters, <laughs> Leilani, or <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, oof. No, I can't. And I you should can? be able to because my but country you, switched from Yeah, you uh, Canadians are more civilized in that way. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll divide by three. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying here to understand. Uh, I, I've... And I think it is to divide by three. So I one foot, of math. I one foot totally. is a third of a meter. So 10,000 feet is 300, uh, 10,000 square feet is 300 square meters. Is that right? Of, of uh, the, is that the, the, the ground? Area. The ground. Yeah, it's not the house yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a, a nice car. No, no. Uh, Paul, were you 3, saying that square. would be 3,000 Square meters <laughs> would be a ten would be more or less a ten thousand square 10, foot square lot. foot lot, and then yeah. that's the lot. Yeah, and, and houses low of seven hundred square feet, so call that uh, two hundred square meters. Wow, that's big. It's big, right? I mean, if you have an yeah. urban mindset, Frederick, it, it sounds big, sounds spacious mm. in mm. suburban and rural markets. <laughs> oh, here we are, lovely. We have little notes being sent to us. 3,000 <laughs> square feet is 278 square uh, meters. There we go. Thank you. That's Does that help, thing. Frederick? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like uh, it's a big home. Anyway, friends, this is like, it's so interesting. But I mean, Leilani, you say we have to keep the big actors at bay. And Paul, what are you telling your government? I mean, what is your message to to the legislators here, because it's all about lay, lay laws protecting um, people. We say two things. What Congress did for the housing stock with the HUD code in the mid-70s to transition it from temporary to permanent, truly permanent housing, needs to be done for the land ownership model um, so that there's permanence to the land for these low-income homeowners. There are a variety of ways to get there. We're scaling limited equity cooperative ownership. 
uh, two on the resource side, and I don't know if this is true in other places, I'll count on you two to tell me, but in the U.S., affordable housing is really looked at in two silos, either rental or home ownership. And lo and behold, these folks fall smack dab in right in the middle. And both sides, the rental subsidy people and the home ownership subsidy people, argue that these homeowners are not theirs. They belong to the other side. Go talk to the other silo. And so growing recognition that there's this home ownership on rented land problem. Uh, there are solutions, and we need to bring some targeted resources to solve this. Leilani, mm -hmm. what, is, what, are, what is your yeah. message? Well, you I talk love to, that. You actually talk to governments a lot, so... Well, I mean, it's it's only for me to amplify the messages coming from the, the groups that are uh, working directly on these issues and directly with the folks who are living the reality. And that's what I love about what Paul said at the end. Um, at, you know, people are living this reality and legislatures should be responsive to people and their realities. And there is this thing called the human right to housing. <laughs> And we have to figure out how law can be used to protect the human right to housing for people who are living in this in-between space. They're owner-renters. And so we need, as you're always saying, Frederick, we need new language and laws to be responsive to the actual realities. I love that. That's good. I'm, I'm with you, Paul. That <laughs> sounds like a, a happy ending of our podcast. Any last words to our listeners, Paul? Uh, you're welcome to learn more about us at uh, rocusa.org and uh, happy to hear from folks around the world. That's cool. Thank you very much for, for being on uh, Pushback Talks. Leilani, fifth season, we're still going and we're still learning. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I, this Suddenly I know a lot about things and I met a lovely person like, like Paul Bradley, who is the president, resident-owned communities in the U.S. and he's with us from... Concord, New Hampshire. Right. But seriously, this issue, I have to say, for, for, for lots of reasons, <clears throat> the manufactured homes community that's under threat really, it sticks with me and I, 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 because it, it feels so predatory. Um, and so I'm really happy to have met Paul and to have had this discussion. I hope we're able to work together. And he works with a hot commodity regarding Apparently. the NSS <laughs> financial <laughs> times. Right. And it's the only segment of the real estate that grows stronger as the economy weakens. Crazy. My God. Let them burn somewhere. Thank you very much, Leilani. How do we fund this podcast? We don't, but we're always looking for <laughs> new patrons. So you go to patreon.com, look for Pushback Talks, and you can support us with couple of dollars, a few euros, whatever your currency is, every little bit helps. And if you want to see Push to Film, you can go to pushtofilm.com and the, the, there so you can watch it at home and and you will meet Leilani traveling the world. So yeah. it's it's all that's one reason. There you go. And you might get some new language from yeah. Leilani. Hey, I heard Push the Film is being used in courses in Egypt to instruct oh. students. That's cool. kind of cool. That's very cool. It spreads far and wide. 
Hello to our friends in Egypt. Keep <laughs> keep it up. And, and, a country and I'm not allowed to travel to anymore. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't like you when you were there. No. No, they did not. They no. did not. I was declared by the parliament to be a terrorist and enemy of the state. Yeah, as a UN special rapporteur. Yeah, yeah. you were arrested and you were quite scared. <laughs> I remember because you were chatting with me at the same time. You, the police was it's watching correct. you on the side of the road. Scary. Mm. <laughs> Friends, thank you very much and, and see you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film. <laughs>